This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Moira Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Moira. Kia ora, Sam. How's How it going you? in Fakatani today? Um, it's good. Every day in Fakatani is a good day. Well, every day above ground is a good day, Sam. And we are joined from somewhere in Dunedin, I think. By Jane Venus. You want to date Jane? Oh, Kira, Kira, Sam, Kira, Marae. I'm. Um, I am in Dunedin. I am in Signal Hill in Paul. Welcome. So, Jane, how was bubble life for you? Oh, bubble life for me was. I was a bit of a mixed blessing, actually. Um, in some way, there were some lovely parts of bubble life and some parts of bubble life which um, were quite stressful, uh, mainly because uh, te- I had to do a lot of teaching online and I found that um, it was it was quite a challenge because I hadn't done it before. I worked, of course, with postgrads who live all over the place and had sort of one-to-one conversations with my postgrad students in the past online and also in the present. Um, however, teaching larger groups and um, teaching creative subjects online, where I'm used to, I really like connecting with people as part of a community and I always think of my classes as a as a community so for me it was quite difficult still keeping that same connection going online and also because the year had barely got underway and I was only just beginning to get to know some of my students and suddenly we're in this different way of teaching so um, on, on that side of things I feel it took me quite a while to get used to planning uh, classes to be delivered in a totally different way and that took a huge amount of time and also making sure that they were still interesting and energetic and my very first time I taught I was so worried that it wasn't going to go well I, I videoed myself teaching this art, this art, art and design history class, and I videoed myself and it was so boring. <laughs> I, I played it back and I thought, I'm bored. I'm bored watching myself teaching this class and how's it going to be for my students, the poor wee buggers? You know, how's that going to be? So I ended up kind of practicing, you know, like being more energetic and just kind of and instead of sitting down like standing up and setting up my laptop up so I actually had a bit more energy so I think by the time we were let out of lockdown I was quite good at it um, and I've learned all these new skills 
Your teaching's pretty you know, energetic anyway. Yeah, but it wasn't so energetic stuck in a little room downstairs sitting down feeling a bit worried about it. And I think I'm glad I had these rehearsals before I actually did go online with my students. Um, and I mean, I do feel like I did get quite good at it, but it, it was a work in progress. And I guess we were all in that situation. Anybody who was teaching for the first time, um, seeing a little logos on the screen, and, and they're your students, and not everybody wants to have their background videoed, and it's a privacy um, matter as well. So you get all these little buttons, which your students, and you know, you've only just started teaching the class quite recently, so you think, LP, who's that? And they don't have their photo. And then you're asking people to respond. And you're going, hello, hello, turn your microphone. Are they still there? You know, that whole thing of teaching with Zoom. And, and it is quite challenging. But we got there. And we ended up having some great conversations um, in the end. You do so that, I guess that was your, your question. So you do lots of activities. I'm, I'm thinking I do. of things like the... A blind contour drawing that you did for, for our um, staff retreat once. You do those sorts of things in class, and, and how did those sorts of things translate? Ah, yeah, not so bad. We did lots of... Um, most of my teaching, uh, because of the time of year, I have different courses running at different times, and um, I had some online uh, physical drawing classes, and that went quite well, but um, my challenge was making art and design history interesting, because I do a lot of stuff, I love teaching people about real artworks in the real world, and I think, you know, it can be quite difficult getting people who are really, they're really creative people, they love, they love going to art galleries and things like that, but they often don't like writing essays. So in the last few years, I take people out into galleries and get them to respond to artworks in the real world and say, okay, look at this work, be in this room, how does it feel, what does it remind you of? Um, and thinking about responding to an artwork as a, a kind of a physical experience rather than something you see online or in books and writing about that and I, that's the way I really love to teach and taking people you know if I'm teaching about, about work booking how to how to record your experiences in a workbook um, getting them to understand that they're part of a whole history of people who've done that a history Leonardo da Vinci didn't just come up with stuff and make it and uh, Colin McCann did lots of work booking and working in his visual diary so I take my students to the Hocken library in the real world before lockdown and go and they'd see Colin McCann's work box and think oh yeah it's not just my my lecturer being totally mean to me and making me make these work books and nobody else does it but that's actually part of a whole history so those kind of things um, initially I was thinking how am I going to manage some of this stuff and then realised that the world in COVID, wonderful creative things were happening in the world, and it was part of a new art movement. It's not like we're looking at art and design history 
and things that have happened in the past. We were part of a historical movement and art and design and music and all sorts of things where people in lockdown all over the world were thinking, how am I going to keep creating? How, how am I going to keep making interesting work? And one of the things that people did, and not only artists, but members of the public who were not necessarily, who would not regard themselves as artists, would respond to famous works of art in galleries. And you probably saw them on Facebook where people would make a work of art at home, a photograph. Uh, they might take photographs in their house of famous artworks. So I thought, here we are, we're doing art history. How about getting my students to make artworks in their bubbles that respond to famous works? And they could choose a New Zealand artist, they could choose an international one. And they started having a lot of fun doing this. And then they would post them on Teams and we'd see, we'd look at some every week um, of what people had posted, but they had to learn about those particular artists as part of that process. So um, some of the, my favourite ones were the Jackson Pollock chocolate cake where one of my students got a Jackson Pollock painting and he looked at the uh, looked at the painting with one of the kind of browny, dribbly brown and black and orangey kind of dribbly ones and he created this chocolate cake and made a Jackson Pollock icing for the cake and um, dribbled it all over. It was very good, actually. And then, and he, so he's he seen a photograph of that and a photograph of himself having a cup of coffee and eating the Jackson Pollock cake. So that was a good one. And um, somebody else did the birth of Venus on a very cold day in their backyard with kind of sw a small child's paddling pool and um, people sort of barely covered with towels. And, you know, the, that was really good and we had such a lot of fun. And I started to realise that uh, once they realised they were part of this movement, they were part of, you know, it was a historical moment, and they were part of it, and began to see it as as, as um, quite, artists have always responded to crises, and made works out of crises, and art movements have always come out of those times, and this is another one, and and all of the, of the work, of course, all of the social action that's come out of climate, the climate crisis, and the way that artists are working uh, as social activists. And so they, we looked at a lot of those as part of this as part of this time as well. I'm going to. Am I talking too much? No, I am going to play Dr. Clawhammer. Keep your social distance. Social, unsocial, my socially acceptable, unsociable, unsocial distance. Keep my bubble, keep my bubble. Keep my bubble. Bubble. 
social distance Ooh, stay in your bubble Yeah, don't burst my bubble Keep my bubble Don't burst my bubble Keeping my social Unsocial My socially acceptable Unsociable Unsocial distance That Dr. Clawhammer sounds suspiciously like Jane. Ah, yes, well, it could possibly be. I would neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Was that a lockdown activity? Yes, it was. Dr. Clawhammer played a bit of music in lockdown, uh, um, both publicly and privately. and it's publicly in a small way because our deck, there's a group of houses at the top of Signal Hill Road and all our decks face out overlooking Northeast Valley. So um, I decided I was going to play music for the neighbours every so often. So I'd um, bring my gear out and have a bit of a jam and it was quite nice weather early on. And early in lockdown, people were at a bit of a loss really of what to do. So it was, quite, it was nice for the neighbours too. Um, they enjoyed the music. And then we started, the guy up the two decks up got his guitar out and so we kind of played to each other and the little kids next door started seeing Wyatt and that was really cool they'd been learning at school so it ended up being this lovely little communal jammy type thing and we did that a few times um and then I, I got into writing some news some new stuff so um the keep the keeping your bubble song. I think it's actually called social distance, and it's a bit of an ironic take on the, the word social distance. It's so unsocial, you know. It's a very unsocial business keeping social distance. So I, I wrote a song about that. Um, and I, I do want to should I talk about the other song? It's been kind of strange that during the time when what we couldn't do was get together as community, in some ways it's brought the community together. Absolutely. I had more conversations with my neighbours than I'd had for ages because I'm usually all so busy. 
and I didn't ever know that man and two I uh, shouldn't be outing people on on uh, the radio. But the person up, person up the road who plays the bass, I didn't know he played the bass. <laughs> so that was interesting. And um, yeah, so it's and you don't sort of you don't know who plays what until you start jamming. And then I keep finding out people would text me and go, "Are you playing music from your house? Because we can hear it in Northeast Valley." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a couple of people down the road in Evans Street that I know said, "Oh, you can hear really well down there." So that was good. With my new amps, obviously quite good. So um, yeah. And I, I thought of making this, I will actually release it, I'm doing it one by one on SoundCloud, but they're only kind of works in progress, the ones on SoundCloud, SoundCloud um, they're works in progress and they're out there for people to enjoy, but I will do um, a more studio version um, of, of a six-song six kind of giant EP called Corona, the Corona Six Pack, so that's that's what these two tracks are part of. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, kutahua hau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that whatever is happening around you, and wherever you are, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding very fulfilling, very satisfying, very nourishing, very inspiring and is illuminating for you more and more each day who you are, the triumph of nature's art, connected to all life in an infinite web and here making things better. Thank you. So I've had a wonderful day and I'm so grateful to get to share it with you and I'm really loving this show with you. Thank you so much to Sam and the whole team. So today I drove all the way up to beautiful Awamaru and I'm returning now. And with the amazing top flight, we packed up 77 of our partner product, the Pika Power Pack. So this is our Pika Pika bird feeders, combining with the wonderful top flight hanging feeder and truffle that we use to feed our beautiful native birds. This is, of course, going nationwide, which is so exciting and such a huge dream come true for us. And it was a wonderful day because I got to hang out with all the Top Flight Dream Team and really get to meet them all and get to know them a lot more and hear their story of how Top Flight has grown from a small family business being run from the family farm to now a bigger business still of course employing the family but also the wider whanau and community as well and no longer based on the farm but having moved from the wool sheds on the farm to these bigger headquarters in Oamaru where I was today and I've just loved hearing everybody's stories of how they got to know Greg and his dad Jock who started the business and what it's meant for each of them it's been so fascinating that process of raraga kōrero and interweaving everybody's stories and of course what they love about 
top flight and which species of birds they really love and just hearing all about their own experience of nurturing life around them and of course for me it was wonderful because I've been able to see the impact of having a family business and I never imagined of course that I would be a business person but I always knew that I wanted to have lots and lots of babies and make my life as wonderful as I could so that when they arrived they would have the best of everything and this still is motivating me more and more especially now that I can see the impact not only of my own life that I'm contributing to but of course all these other lives that my life is connected to and through my work at Orokanoi for the last 11 years I can really see the impact of laying those foundations for life to flourish and of course that's what I want to do forever and it's been wonderful to hear about for Greg what it was like growing up with his family business and helping his dad pack up all the seed for all the birds and of course Top Flight have been sending Orokanui sunflower seeds for the beautiful kaka since 2006 so it's wonderful to connect with them more and more and I thought this is, you know, what I want for my beautiful offspring. And not just for them, but of course for their whole generation to grow up in a really supportive, really loving environment where there's lots and lots of nature, the real world, the living world, flourishing around them. And lots of opportunities for them to connect with themselves on a deeper level through that connection with the real world. And there's a culture of loving and protecting the natural world that is so much a part of who we are as New Zealanders, as kaitiaki, as guardians. So it's been a really inspiring day. And I really hope that for all of you, it is becoming clearer and clearer to you how everything that you do is laying the foundations for those who will come after us. And we're all contributing our unique skills to making this place even better for all those lives that are waiting to be born. And I'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakite. So now we're back at work. Are you back teaching face to face? I am. Uh, I'm in holiday at the moment. But I have been back teaching face to face. Did that seem weird? Oh, no, it was great. Oh, it was really nice to see the students. And funnily enough, there were a couple of people I'd never met before who I'd only taught some post-grads, uh, post-grad workshops, and I'd only ever taught them online. And um, it was really nice to meet them in real life. That was great. And it was good to see my, my young ones, my um, certificate students again. And, and we got back just in time because they, of course, had been doing so much stuff online and they were really wanting to make. They were just desperate to get into the workshop and get into the studio and get cracking. So they had their final projects to make and we still ended up having an exhibition and we didn't know right till the end whether we could have it. And we just thought, oh, yeah, we're going to have it anyway. And it all worked out. And by then we'd gone into level one just in time for us to have an opening so that was lovely you talked before about um, how yeah. we're in this this historical moment you could yeah. argue that all moments are historical and there's there's this change happening all the time do you think that yeah. 
in when people are studying art history in the decades to come, people are going to call this the, the, the year of COVID art? Oh, I have no idea what they'll call it, but I, I, I do think that we are... Uh, I mean, of course you can argue that every moment's a historical moment, but this is an unprecedented time. I mean, it, interestingly, I mean, if we go back to previous epidemics um, and the artwork that's come out of them, we don't have to go far back far before we think of the AIDS epidemic and how people were treated during that time, were treated as second-class citizens, were left to kind of die in the street. There were just awful things happening. And out of that time also came um, artwork, thinking of the AIDS quilt and things like that. And you go back... Um, but I'm just thinking of this time, yes, that, that affected a lot of people, and it's not as though it's gone away. That is still happening, but it's like, it's because it's, you know, Western countries, as soon as something happens to rich and richer Western countries, it's just like right out there in the news. In Africa, for many years, AIDS has been a huge problem, and it's kind of like swept under the carpet. But because... COVID has been affecting, um, you know, it didn't start off in third world countries and has affected first world countries. It's, you know, it's been right out there in everybody's consciousness. So I'm just kind of thinking, you know, making those comparisons. Um, but I do think, obviously, this is an unprecedented time and very interesting work is coming out of it. But also, it's what's been happening with climate how in the last few years, finally, the penny has started to drop about the environment, or you know, and the youth movements around the environment, and how what an important time that is, and how people have been responding to that as well. So, yes, of course, we're going to look back, and, and I don't know what this time will be called, and let's just hope it's a year. Thinking, you know, this is the COVID year. Well, who knows? Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller urban explorer and conversationalist, observing city life in lockdown. Hi there, bubble folk. What's going on? Hope you are having one of those days that just is filled with sunshine, magical laughter, great friends, great people. Um, maybe you've had an awesome lunch. Gosh, isn't it great when you have a, have a good lunch? <laughs> one of my favourites, mushrooms on toast. I don't know what it is about mushrooms on toast, but it is my go-to whenever I'm starving. Bit of Vogel's toast. Um, I like to put a bit of pesto on the toast. Yeah, that's my uh, style. Um, mushrooms just lightly sautéed and a bit of olive oil, uh, garlic, and maybe a splash of soy sauce just for a bit of extra zhuzh. And then once they go on the pesto Vogel's, uh, a little bit of Parmesan cheese, maybe some coriander, a little bit of cracked pepper, I've got some spinach, I'll throw that on. Maybe a drizzle of lemon juice on the top. Ha, oh, voila, a delicious lunch. So anyone who doesn't like mushrooms that's hearing this story, just replace it with whatever you really like and uh, it might be a better story that you're listening to. Anyway, it's always good to eat the kind of food that makes you feel good, um, both health-wise but also, you know, like mentally. If we eat food that we enjoy... Um, I don't know, it just sort of sets us up for a great afternoon if we've had that lunch that just, you know, 
delicious. So yeah, think about what kind of foods really make you happy, because weirdly, food does sort of have that effect on us, and it's kind of like um, some food tries to make us happy, sugar, etc., but I don't know if that's its actual uh, outcome. So yeah, what makes you feel good once you've eaten it? Right, well I totally digress from what I was going to talk about, which is actually nothing to do with mushrooms on toast at all, but it's always good to kick off with mushrooms on toast, move from there to the idea of adults being playful. Now, I think sometimes we get caught in thinking playful is a childish thing or a childlike thing. Now those two things are sort of different, I think, because childish implies... I think a lack of maturity, um, maybe a lack of thought, whereas childlike is actually more about engaging with activity that is like we were as children, not that we have become children, (laughs) if you can sort of see the distinction there. And I guess it's about, as adults, we get so conditioned into thinking that we've got to behave in a certain way that actually inhibits a lot of our playfulness. Now, you watch kids play together and, you know, take aside the sort of dialogue and the the childish sort of nature of it, maybe, but watch what happens. They, They work together on things, they sometimes fight over things, but a lot of the time it's this active sort of like imagination that's going on and this willingness to engage when they create a world that it's believable, so they enjoy their imaginations and there's often a lot of laughter because kids who are playing and being playful, living in that world where we can engage our imagination and think about things in a totally wacky way, doesn't necessarily need to make it real or we don't need to believe that it's real, but if we can engage with that kind of imaginary world, we actually take into the real world creativity and energy and ideas and excitement for things you know once you've made something up um, I know as a kid when I used to make up these imaginary stories about the roads that I'd make through the garden like I used to like little toy cars um, because I liked making worlds so I'd make these worlds in the garden where you could go through tunnels and you'd go to a town and you'd have lunch and then the car would take you somewhere else and I created this whole world in our back garden that clearly didn't exist at all, but it stimulated my brain into thinking about things that probably I wouldn't have thought of if I hadn't created my little world. So as adults, you know, we don't tend to get down in the garden and create our little, you know, pretend world, but why not, you know? And what is wrong with imagining imagining things and then using that energy to fuel our our lives in a more joyful and creative kind of way so I think next time you're watching the kids play watch what makes them happy and think about what we've lost maybe and can we inject that back into our lives because I think being playful is essential hope you have a really playful rest of the day (laughs) and I'll talk soon take care I suppose that the art or role of the the creative sector, the role of, of, of art in reflecting, perhaps driving social change, also perhaps mm. preserving. Preserving moments. 
Yeah. You, you, well, yeah, you, yeah, you, absolutely. You, you, you talked about things like the, the AIDS quilt. It's got me wondering if there was Spanish flu artworks. I don't know. I don't know if there was. Um, there may well have been, but I'm just thinking about over the years, various various artworks, which are not, you know, there are often historical artworks that are revisited in contemporary times. And something that we did in our class during this time of COVID was looking at what has happened historically in New Zealand with artworks and how they're being revisited and how a story is being retold. And thinking of Goldie's painting of um, the Maori arrival in New Zealand, which was based on the raft of the Medusa, which is um, the raft of the Medusa was a tale of sort of um, seafaring ineptitude. Uh, of this this particular vessel, which founded and the, the the sailors ended up on a raft, kind of starving on this raft. Goldie took that as his as a kind of inspiration for his painting, which which depicted Maori arriving in New Zealand, half starved and kind of landing here by accident. And that is the painting that I grew up with as a child. And those are the sort of things that people believed. And then that work was re kind of re-envisaged by um, Simu, Greg Simu, who did this beautiful work um, where he went to the Cook Islands and worked with various people there and took a whole series of photographs of strong of, of strong bodies. Um, he used both the raft of the Medusa and, and Goldie's work and then we created these beautiful, um, beautiful photographs which were shown in light boxes and and told retold that story and retold it without that kind of colonial eye, without that colonial uh, narrative. And so people began to actually talk about that story and talk about the fact that this was a purpose these were purposeful voyages by competent seafarers who used all sorts of scientific methods to find their way here. And so the students through seeing those artworks and seeing how they're being re retold are learning all of those things so you can you look at artworks from the past and think, well, what is it telling us about the world then? I mean that's really what art history is. What was happening in the world then and how were people responding to it? And that was the response was that was a colonial narrative. Now how are people telling the story now? We now know differently. And what are the stories that are going out and what should people be learning now about um, reconfiguring those works? So have you had the students discussing the Black Lives Matter and the the, the statues coming down yes. as a consequence? Because yes. yeah. it's a similar yes. sort of argument. It is a similar sort of argument, only with because once all of that started, I finished. I stopped teaching that particular class, but with some of my postgrads who I've been working with, um, we've been discussing those things. So, um, yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Okay, let's and play. The signage around. Sure, I was just thinking the signage around some of those those monuments is important as well. That can tell a new story. That can that can actually contextualise some of those things and say, well, this was made then. This is actually what's happened now. So yeah, it's interesting. Let's play. Gonna divorce my cat, which is Dr. Clawhammer coming back. 
to us having a shower. Divorcing my cat. It's come to that. An irretrievable breakdown of domestic relationship. interesting poses and yeah so at some point it has been way that we have recorded history right i know you know writing about it but i didn't know shakespeare wrote hamlet because his son hamnet died of the um of the plague and when he wrote hamlet um that was that was the the young boy and hamlet was based on a son who died so, yeah, I didn't know about the artwork. It doesn't surprise me. Thank you for that. So, of all of the changes we've seen over the last few months, what do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Oh, what I hope will stick is people um, 
the, you know, we're advocating kindness in our communities. We're advocating, you know, during that time, people getting to know their neighbours a bit better and keeping those conversations going. That would be really, really good. And as I'm saying that, I'm realising that I have not seen my neighbours um, who I spent more, you know, more conversations with during that time because everybody's got busy again. So, um, and I think that there has been, during this time, I think I feel incredibly lucky to have been here in New Zealand where our government took such a firm stand and really tried to keep us safe. Um, and and I think that there was a lot of collective goodwill and I would really like to see that stay because I think it's so easy the minute something goes wrong to start knocking and saying, oh, it's not good enough. People are doing their best. And I think the government has really done its very best to try and keep people safe and really promote being kind, you know, kind to each other in a difficult time. And I think that I'd really like to see that staying because I think a little kindness goes a long way. Um, and, yeah, I guess I get, when I think here we are, here, when I think about how many people, some of whom may, might listen to this podcast, who are living in very, very difficult situations, still in their bubbles or gone back into lockdown and how difficult all of that is, especially people with young children. And, you know, there are many lockdown stories. It's so easy from a position of having a job that has been paid throughout lockdown and having a job that you can do from home and so the wages keep coming into the bank. Um, thinking of the people who have had very difficult lockdowns, either because they've lost their jobs, they haven't had money, they or they've been frontline workers and every day have gone out into dangerous situations so we can actually be home and safe. Um, and just to kind of respect those people and and it's so yeah everybody's lockdown is not the same and there's been there are poor people in lockdown who've had a really hard time and it's so easy to think that you know oh you know it's so nice to have a bit of extra time as many people have said who weren't working um but you there might be extra time and very little money for a lot of people what do you think we can learn from how we've responded as a society for those sorts of questions that social justice type questions, the the longer term ones, intergenerational ones, perhaps climate change. What can we learn about how how we've done this? I think one big thing that we can learn is that the environment took a deep breath during lockdown. There was less air traffic, there was all sorts of less pollution on the roads, there was, you know, I think it was a very, very good thing for the planet. And I mean, what we could learn is that we could be um, doing that a lot more often, flying less, doing all of those things less which are polluting, because it did make a huge difference. Looking at some of those uh, photographs from Kashmir, villages in Kashmir where people saw the Himalayas for the first time for 30 years. Um, so those, I think some of those things we can learn from it and we can also learn from the fact that, you know, during that time it seemed as though a lot of the acrimonious 
party sort of snippy party politics kind of took a back seat for a little while because it was very important that we were on the same page and everybody was looked after. And now all of that's kind of, you know, the dirty politics is coming back and, and you know, every time a, a breach happens uh, with our quarantine, COVID quarantine um, systems, you know, every time a breach happens, there's lots of, you know, these are hotels, they're not prisons. Everybody's doing their best to try and keep people safe. And I think just a little bit of less sort of vindictive snipping um, would go a long way. <laughs> Some questions yeah. to and <laughs> some questions to end with. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh God, um, I have no idea. Um, that's a very broad question. So, um, shall I start, Professor Venus? <laughs> Okay, yep. Um, what is the biggest? I guess um, getting more. Uh, working more internationally, I guess, with my. Here I am saying we shouldn't be flying. You know, one, one thing we've learned from lockdown, it's, it's quite important not to be sort of tearing off all over the place. However, some of my. Um, biggest success probably in the last two years has involved travelling overseas and working in different places, um, being involved in different communities and one of those was last year um, being lucky enough um, to go to Portugal for an artist in residency um, with my friend Hannah Joint and she and I uh, worked together and so we went on this residency in a little village called Messejana in Portugal and it was a beautiful place and we were involved there making work, uh, making new work which has since been shown in the Ashburton Gallery, a solo show and then went off to Korea and to South Korea where on the eve of our lockdown, we managed to send our exhibition to South Korea where it was shown there um, in a big gallery and just as they were opening up. <laughs> so we actually managed to get our show, which looked like it was a total miracle. We were supposed to go as well and perform at the opening, but that didn't happen. Um, so so we're, writing, kind of, yeah. we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. So yeah. you're in our team, our team of people doing good work. What's got you into the mansion? What's your superpower? What's got me what? Into our mansion into of superheroes. Uh, who would know? Because um, you invited me, you said, would I come and be on What's your superpower, program? Jane? <laughs> Humour. Being able to see, I guess my my artwork really is around looking at the kind of absurdities of contemporary popular culture, and I really like uh, I like doing that. I like seeing uh, the ridiculous sides of life, which is really why I wrote the song "I Want to Divorce My Cat" because my I became allergic to my cat during lockdown. She spent a lot of time sitting on my lap and um, every time she comes near me I'm scratching and sneezing and carrying on which is why that soundtrack sounds so itchy and scratchy because I played it on a banjo scratching the 
vellum top of the banjo. So that's why it's going. So it's a kind of irritated little piece of music. So I guess um, humour is the thing that I, that keeps me going. So do you consider yourself to be an activist? Oh, probably a quiet kind of activist. Yeah, a lot of my work is around social action and social issues. But it's work where people um, come... The humour is kind of like the way to invite people in. But when something is funny, it's almost like people's, um, what's the word I'm looking for, defences go down a little bit. Because once you can laugh at something, you relax. And once you've laughed at something and relax, then there's the moment for sort of deeper issues to be to come to the surface. So um, things that if you've made in a very serious way, people may not, um, they may not kind of negotiate a space around them at all they might not come into them and discuss them but once they see that humor it yeah it just allows that freedom to be able to to have discussions you might not have so i guess my activism is in that way and what motivates you um motivates me in what it's very general what gets you out of bed in the morning Breakfast. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I really enjoy life. I enjoy working with people. Um, I enjoy working with my students. Yeah. Definitely. What's the biggest, and I like... What is the biggest challenge so, you're looking forward to in the next couple of years? Ah... Uh, I suppose I, that's right. I was supposed to be writing my three-year plan. Oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> that reminded me. Uh, I guess can, well, the the challenge. I've been making some new work with Hannah, and we make we we've come up with these. We're making some small video works, and they're called small measures. Small measures are slight specific responses to third world to, sorry site specific responses to first world guilt the series of little video clips and it is around problems what we could talk about as being first world problems um, and I'm not going to tell you what those are but they are going to be out there in the world at some stage soon um, and there's a, there's a whole series of them, and they're short video works, and we're going to have... So the next the challenge is to put together this uh, exhibition of these new works where we're working in quite a different way. That's one challenge. Um, and another is editing a new book that's coming together. So that's another challenge. So, yeah, there's always, there's always things coming up. I don't know what the biggest challenge is. And finally, do you have any advice for our listeners? <laughs> it sounds like sort of like Auntie Jane, that kind of, you know, tell your problems for you. Advice for the listeners. Um, it's a free hit. Fun. Say whatever you Be like. Be your neighbours. I don't know. What advice to the listeners? I have no idea, Sam. Um, the listeners, I'm sure, were probably well advised as it is. And just to um, carry on enjoying life, keeping, finding things that make you laugh because... I must admit, all of the news can be very depressing. 
And I'd, sometimes I say to myself, I'm not even going to look at the news today. I'm not going to go on my phone and see the worst things that have happened and how the politicians are all bitching and how many people are dying and all of those things because sometimes it all gets to be a bit much and you might just need to do something really nice like play some music, catch up with a friend, cook a nice meal, do some things that you've actually got control over. I guess that's the advice. Sometimes it's to do stuff you've got control over because many things we have no control over, especially other people's behaviour. So I guess that's... Um, Thank does you. that make sense? That makes a lot of you sense. Thank you very much out. for that. <laughs> Mawera. <laughs> Blessed are the gypsies, the makers of music, the artists, writers, dreamers of dreams, wanderers and vagabonds, children and misfits, for they teach us to see the world through beautiful eyes. Thank you for teaching us to see the world that way, Jane. Oh, Kira, thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, this has been a lovely conversation. Thank you. It's just... Yeah. Thank you. I was kind of aware that I did kind of waffle on a bit, but um, you've got you've got editing tools for all of that sort of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jolly good. Okay. Thank you. you better go. Bye bye. Enjoy the rest of your day, Jane. Well, you too. Kaka day. Bye bye. Kaka day. Bye. Sam. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3, and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, with Marira Karatai in Fakatani. And in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, we've been joined by Jane Venus. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.